HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode was brought to you by 100 Bogart, a new building in Bushwick, Brooklyn, with meeting and event spaces available for on-demand booking. Looking for the next perfect outdoor location for your next gathering? Host your next event at 100 Bogart's impressive rooftop, just steps away from the Morgan L stop. It's one of the largest and tallest roof spaces in Bushwick, boasting 360-degree views of Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Queens. 100 Bogart's Rooftop is available for your next networking event, fundraiser, special performance, or photo shoot. There's approximately 5,000 square feet, ample space for up to 100 guests. For more information on hosting an event at 100 Bogart's Rooftop, email info at 100bogart.com or call 718-362-3539. Hey, this is Hannah, HRN's program manager. It's HRN's 10th anniversary and now our summer fun drive. So show your support for independent, revolutionary, entertaining food radio by becoming a monthly recurring donor. HRN is powered by a passionate community of thoughtful eaters and we need each and every one of you to show your support so that we can keep bringing you your favorite food podcasts. It takes a village, and every dollar donated, every listener tuning in is essential to our continued success. So set up a donation for $10 every month. You'll show us that you want to be a part of a bright future for HRN. And you'll get one of our brand new limited edition Pizza Pocket t-shirts. So snag your new favorite tea and show us some love, all for the price of about two fancy lattes each month. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate today. And thank you. My memories of the days, weeks, and months following the 2016 election are hazy but visceral. I remember feeling lost and frazzled and scared and a lot of the time feeling hungry from running myself ragged. I felt like I and everyone around me was playing a game of whack-a-mole, trying to figure out how to respond to each new crisis that popped up. At some point, I had to slow down and figure out how to take better care of myself and the people around me. I started picking up pizza or bagels or inviting people over for a pot of stew. Feeding people allowed me to root down into something that felt tangible. In the fall of 2017, I came across a New York Times op-ed called The Resistance is Hungry that spoke to that thing that I had been feeling, the necessity of shared meals as a tool for social change. 
That piece was written by this week's guest, Julia Tertian. In addition to her similarly themed cookbook, Feed the Resistance, Julia is the best-selling author behind Now and Again and Small Victories. She is also the founder of Equity at the Table, a directory of women and gender nonconforming folks in food, and the host of a fantastic podcast called Keep Calm and Cook On. My conversation with Julia felt a lot like reading one of her cookbooks. She is warm, inviting, hopeful, and always ready to bring social justice front and center. I hope that you get as much out of it as I did. Uh, well, I should admit that I am kind of starstruck. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think that Be the Resistance was like my go-to gift for a full year, oh, awesome. like a full cycle yeah. of birthdays, probably. That's awesome. Uh, and Eat has played a huge role in this podcast. Okay. Oh, I'm uh, so glad. Anytime that I get a kind of condescending, like, oh, that's really niche. I'm like, look mm-hmm. at this. That's awesome. That's uh, awesome. Yeah. So just, thank you. Giving you that kind of comment. Just like a lot of men, <laughs> a lot of straight men. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you do many things. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you introduce yourself? I, how would I introduce myself? Um, I'm Julia Tertian. I'm a cookbook author. Um, I am the host of a podcast called Keep Calm and Cook On, and I am the founder of Equity at the Table, aka Eat, with two T's, uh, and I am also a parent to three pets. Amazing. And you mentioned Eat, which is, is where I'm kind of hoping to start. Can you talk about that project and what Equity at the Table is? Yeah, so Equity at the Table is a very easy-to-navigate digital directory uh, for women and non-binary folks in food. We focus primarily on people of color and the queer community. Uh, so that's wh- what it is. It's a it's a database. Um, it's a community of people. It's, it's really great because you can search by profession, um, location, and identification. So you can search by any one of those things or a combination of any of those things. And I started it in April of 2017. And I started it for a number of reasons. Um, One was I had been sort of attending um, conferences and events and stuff like that. And sometimes was there because I was invited to be on a panel or, or to talk. And the more I looked around at who else was being given those invitations, I just felt that it was a lot of people who looked a lot like me, which is to say a lot of white people. And I thought that that was pretty lame and and boring (laughs) and, you know, obviously not inclusive, but also just a much less interesting conversation. So I started just personally, anytime I was asked to be part of anything like that, I started asking who else was being asked uh, before I, I responded and just sort of was taking this kind of pause. And in doing so, I was having a lot of, I would say, pretty like revealing conversations with people who are in positions of, of power to be organizing these kinds of things, people who are doing the asking and the inviting. And I started basically sending recommendations <laughs> of, of people they could reach out to. And I just got to a point where I felt like it would be so nice if I could just send a link so when I had that thought, I just assumed something like Eat existed and I started looking for it. And there's like amazing, amazing resources online and, and obviously offline. Um, there's amazing list of, say, female chefs and that kind of thing. But there wasn't something that I found was as all encompassing as what Eat is, because the food industry is like a gigantic umbrella with so many industries underneath it. You know, you have 
cookbook authors like myself, restaurant chefs, farmers, um, you know, people who specialize in making cheese or pickles. Um, you know, there's the whole kind of beverage world, people who make and produce wine and beer and kombucha and tea and all these things, the people who serve it, there's the people who clean up after all of these things. Um, so there's so, so many industries. So I couldn't find something as all encompassing and especially couldn't find anything that focused mostly on people of color in the queer community. And it felt very important that it be a list that kind of prioritized and centered the voices and the people who have been uh, most off center and most marginalized. So I put it together with um, the help of an advisory board. I put together a group of, of colleagues and peers. You know, it felt really important to me that if EAT was going to represent a very big community of many professions, many identities, um, that it not just come from one person. <laughs> um, so I, I wanted there to be a good mix of people in the kind of decision-making process at the beginning. You know, what professions do we include? Um, do we, are you know, are we open to considering cisgendered men or something like that? All these questions mm -hmm. that came up, um, I I, I couldn't answer them by myself. So I put together this advisory board. I also found a really amazing web designer because um, the uh, kind of back end of building equity at the table is definitely something I have no idea how to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so that was kind of the team that put it together. And as we built it, I started reaching out to people. So when Equity at the Table launched, we launched with about 100 founding members and that felt super important because I wanted it to not just be the idea of what equity at the table could be. I wanted it to be very clear from the minute you logged on to the site exactly what it was and who was on it. And it's grown since then. We've grown almost tenfold where I think close to a thousand members. We have an Instagram feed. I have a pretty much a bi-weekly kind of newsletter I send out to all members that have things like job opportunities that come sort of to the equity at the table inbox, um, community news, community events and stuff. So it's it's been really, really cool to to build it and to watch it grow because, you know, it's not just this place where people like event organizers can come and find people, which was sort of my original intention. It's also become this very, very strong and I would say pretty tight-knit community. And what's so cool is that everyone who's part of the site, we're getting to know each other. And right. that is, is just as powerful. Yeah, it seems like instead of just now there's a place to send like the gatekeepers, mm -hmm. it also kind of maybe removes the need for that. Exactly. Exactly. Um, huge. And I wonder like now that you are able to send that link, mm -hmm. I guess what has the response been from aforementioned gatekeepers? <laughs> yeah, um, it's it's. I would say for the most part, it's been really awesome. I've, I've heard from a lot of editors, um, you know, because I work in kind of cookbooks and food media, that's who I'm in touch with most of the time. So I've heard from lots of um, book editors, book agents, magazine editors, um, you know, blog editors, those kinds of folks about how much they use Eat, which is great. And mm -hmm. I've heard from members about um, being contacted, whether it's been being hired to write something, to photograph something, to food style a story, whatever it might be. Um, some of them have been contacted because people have found them through Equity at the Table and want to feature them. So all those things have been happening, which is which is really wonderful. And my my hope with with Eat is that anyone in that kind of position of power doesn't just know about it, but that they bookmark it. <laughs> um, you know that they. <laughs> coming back to it, that it really be a resource. Um, you know, it's not the answer to every question, but it's a really helpful tool, I think, as we all move this huge industry and, you know, all the industries within it in a much more inclusive and equitable direction. Absolutely. I think about that a lot of just like the different ways that it feels like 
in food industries, identity has like been able to be a part of it rather than just like, oh, it's just the food. Yeah, I mean, it's it's between putting together Feed the Resistance and and starting Equity at the Table, that's kind of a question that has come up a lot in my life about the separation between food and identity, um, the separation between food and, and politics. And I just, I think to even be in the position where you can ask that question is such a place of, of privilege to, yeah. <laughs> to imagine that any of those things are separate because they're not. Um, you know, everything about food is political and everything about food is about people and everything about politics is about people. And, you know, so it's identity is, is intrinsic to, to food um, and to, to these industries and, you know, and to politics, like they're all related, like there's no, no separating. Yeah. And I guess that brings me to, I've been wondering about this through line in your work and, and why is it food? Like what gives food meaning for you? That's a great question. I have been um, in love with food, obsessed with food, attached to food. And, and to cooking, really, uh, for my whole life, since before I can remember. So I would say my love of food, my sort of desire to be able to to use food as a way to express myself, to express my feelings, to express my love for the people I'm cooking for, um, to express myself through what I cook, that has been part of me before I think I was even in touch with any part of my identity, you know, from the kind of core of, of me is, is a love of cooking. Um, if I never make another cookbook ever again, if I don't do anything in the food world ever again, I will always cook. So I, it's really interesting to hear your question because it wasn't like I came to caring about social justice or equity or any of these things and then thought, oh, food would be a really great way to translate this message. I came to food first and the rest kind of followed. So food is always how I've expressed myself. It's always how I've kind of understood the world. You know, it's the lens with which I look at everything. I just want to know what everyone's eating everywhere. (laughs) What I care about Um, when I was a kid, my parents both worked full time when I was growing up every single day when they came home, whatever time they came home, if they came home late, it didn't matter. The first thing I asked them was what they had for lunch. And it just made me feel like I, you know, I was separate from them, from them, you know, while they were at work, you know, they went into their world. I was in my world. I was at school or whatever, but somehow feeling like I knew what they had for lunch made me feel like, okay, I get what you went through today. Like, (laughs) I like I understand your day. So food is like it's just how I how I know people, how I feel like I do. So it's it feels very very natural to me um to make those connections between things like politics, identity, justice, all of that. Food to me is how I just understand everything. So it's how I understand those things too. Yeah. Did you always feel like there was space for that, like to apply the lens of food to all of the things that you were interested in? Yeah, I mean, I I feel like a very, very lucky person and privileged person for many reasons. Um, And one of them is that I've known what I've loved my entire life. And I've also always seen a pretty clear path to make that thing I love into work that keeps me busy and keeps me satisfied and keeps me feeling very content and keeps me feeling challenged, you know, all those things. And also, you know, allows me to have 
an income. Um, so I feel so, so lucky that I've always known what I've loved to do and that I get to do it. And I've had a lot of support in, in my interest in food from a really young age. And that has come directly from my parents um, and from the many kind of caretakers I had in my life. I was also raised very much by my babysitter, who's still a very big part of my life. My Aunt Debbie, she she passed away a couple of years ago. I was very, very close to her. She gave me my complete restaurant education. She took me out to eat all the time. And it was like how we spent time together, but it's how I learned about restaurants. So I've had so much support in my life for for my love of, of food. And, and my parents both worked in publishing when I was growing up. So it felt very obvious to me that people made printed matter for a living. You know, I saw my parents make pages every day. They were um, art directors and editors. And, you know, so I saw them kind of building stories and translating them to the page. And I never studied cooking. I, I didn't go to culinary school, but I studied writing. And I always did it with the intent of writing about food. And I actually did most of my school writing about food, <laughs> like starting in like middle school, like, what are they eating in the book? That's what I'll write the book report on. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> it's always like very, you know, I, I'm not very old, but I feel like I've been in this world, like I've been working at this since I was so young. So I feel like I have 30 plus years of experience <laughs> because I started when I was tiny. And so, yeah, working on cookbooks is really the only thing I've ever done. And I used to supplement, I, I couldn't afford to live in New York City, which is where I lived up until a few years ago. And my wife and I moved to upstate New York, but I couldn't afford to live in New York working just as a writer doing the kind of writing I was, I was doing. And so I used to do a lot of private chef work. Um, mm. but I've never really had a quote unquote real job, <laughs> like working on cookbooks or cooking that has been my work forever. I've always been a freelancer. Um, so that was part of your question, how I got into it. And your other question was, did I always know that there was space to kind of explore kind of food justice, that kind of stuff? Is that? Yeah. 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 I, I think that there have always been connections between food and social justice and food and social movements and food and politics and food and activism and food and all of these things. Those connections have always been there. And there's a great uh, amount of, of history and, and legacy to food being part of all sorts of movements. Um, so that is nothing new. And but I would say my my connection between it and my work is definitely something I, I came to more recently in my career. It wasn't what I always did. And that is really because I was coming from just such a huge place of privilege and I had the ability to separate those things. You know, I had the ability to just work on recipes because I cared so much about the recipes and I wasn't thinking about who was going to follow them or what they meant or advocating for anything else besides like a great home cooked meal, which I still very much believe in. But I now I feel like I have a deeper understanding of the way a meal can connect to so many other things. So for me, that moment of connection, it sort of came in, t in two waves. And I would say the first was kind of coming more in touch with my own identity mm -hmm. and really realizing that Yes, there are a lot of other white women in food. There's plenty of us. <laughs> There's a ton of us, in fact. But when it comes especially to cookbooks, which is, you know, the tiny corner of the food world that I live in, there aren't a lot of openly gay women writing cookbooks. So when I sort of started to get in touch with my own identity and own experience and was realizing that that was 
not something that was so reflected in in the work that I I love so much and you know the cookbooks I grew up with and and you know lugged around for years from mm-hmm. apartment to studio apartment I wasn't seeing anyone who had the life experience I was experiencing reflected in the work that meant so much to me and so that was I would say like the first kind of light bulb that went off and the second was honestly was the 2016 presidential election and a lot of things kind of kicked into gear for me then and I've, I've spent a lot of time reflecting on the fact that it took me that long and it took me that mm-hmm. election to really understand those things and I, I definitely feel a certain amount of um, some guilt or shame around that but I also feel very much like better now than never so right and I think both of those things show up and are woven like even in now and again it's like such a joy to read about cooking with or cooking for or sitting down to a meal with your wife you Mm -hmm. know like that is still so rare and I think so often any woman who talks about identity in terms of food I feel like is just scorned like bloggers who spend time talking about their identity or their family and then doubly so if you are queer or like outside of that that norm Um, yeah it's interesting because I've done you know putting together Feed the Resistance and and putting together Equity at the Table are both projects that are very overt about what they stand for um (laughs) and you know very very direct and Feed the Resistance is uh, a totally political book and Equity at the Table Equity is in the name it is clear what it stands for um (laughs) And so those types of projects I do, those kinds of conversations I get to be a part of feel very direct and clear. And then I also do a lot of work that is more mainstream kind of cookbook stuff. And, you know, my other two cookbooks that I've done in my own small victories and now and again are general interest cookbooks. There's nothing political in their titles or anything like that. There's no pride flag kind of hidden on the cover. But I very intentionally do things like talk about my wife in my more quote unquote mainstream work. And I do it with with intention that comes from a few different places. One, you know, Grace, my wife is the person I cook with and for the most often. She's the person I eat pretty much all my meals with. So um, yeah, she's going to come up. I also think she's the best person in the world. So I love talking about her. But it also is very much for me kind of like this small radical act because to talk about my identity, to talk about my queerness in something as mainstream as a general interest cookbook feels really, really important. And I think that cookbooks are seen as this really friendly medium and they're very non-threatening. They're welcomed into so many people's homes and libraries and schools. So for me to be able to in a just a very casual way, kind of just mention my wife and blah, 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 this and that. And I really think it makes a difference. And I don't just have that feeling. It's been confirmed to me in many ways that I never would have anticipated when I wrote my first book. And I've gotten to be you know, really lucky to get to go on book tour for my work. And wherever I go, like whatever city I'm in, uh, whatever town I'm in, you know, it doesn't have to be a major city. I would say always pretty much 90% of the time, there's a young queer woman who comes up to me and tells me what it means to see the word wife written by another woman in a cookbook that, you know, her grandmother would read. (laughs) And it's really not lost on me how, um, incredible that experiences of that kind of human connection and to be able to create visibility in in doing work where I get to just be myself. I feel so lucky and it's been a huge motivator for me whenever, if I feel overwhelmed by the cookbook process or anything like that, 
having had so many of those experiences, those kinds of conversations, it's it's a real source of drive for me and, and gratitude and also responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it is huge. I was talking about giving feed the resistance of, as a gift, and there are definitely people in my family that if I gave them feed the resistance would be like, you know, I roll, never pick it up, but <laughs> would love now and again. And so it's, yeah, it is a small radical act, but also huge in that yeah. way to just be yeah. like, oh, this is an invitation to bring something yeah. in. Yeah. Uh, and it's, I, I mean, I so appreciate that. And it means a lot because I think it's important and it's, it's given me this whole new love for and belief in the power of cookbooks in a way I just, I never understood as a young person. You know, I just, I love the food. I love the pictures. I loved imagining the dinner parties I might get to have. You know, it was it was really fun and it felt very meaningful, but it was kind of on this sort of surface level of meaning, which isn't nothing. But as I've come to kind of understand these more, what I feel are kind of deeper levels of meaning, um, I just, I think the the role of a cookbook in, in people's lives and families' lives is incredible. And people take them in in ways they don't take in other things. And just as you said, they're so inviting. And then people make recipes out of them. And, you know, so I do things like certain foods that Grace loves that I write recipes for. Like I'll put her name in the title or, you know, I did a, a cake in my book, Small Victories, that I called Happy Wife, Happy Life Cake, because it was her favorite <laughs> cake. And I did another version of Now and Again. And I see that cake pop up on social media and stuff. And people make it and whether they like it or not, they're making like this pride cake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Incredible experience. And I didn't go into naming it thinking like, oh, how can I slip in some cool gay pride right here? I named it Happy Wife, Happy Life Cake because it's Grace's favorite cake and it makes her really happy. And I just thought it was sort of funny and kind of nerdy and sweet to call it that. So that's why I did it. But now that I see the effect that's had it, it, it really kind of blows my mind in a really positive way. And it's it's cool. Yeah. And I think that same power of cookbooks to kind of be invited and and they feel approachable and can open a conversation. That's the same with the power of food. When you have people that sit down at a table together that may or may not share common views or or ideas or sentiments like that's much easier to do when each person has a plate in front of them yeah there's I I feel like I've been hearing a lot about and having certain conversations about that it's it's sort of a myth that food brings us together and does it actually do that and I'm a big believer that food gives you this way to get together to then have uncomfortable conversations and you know it gives us this comfortable space to confront things that have made us uncomfortable so it's not the food itself it doesn't matter what you're eating but that act of having something as familiar as a meal is like a very very powerful thing to Mm -hmm. to create and to me that's the highest purpose of food is to bring kind of unlikely people together and I mean just as you said it's very different to be sitting around a table with a meal like I always think about a table without food is is a meeting (laughs) you know (laughs) that is uncomfortable. Like nobody likes a meeting. Everyone's looking at their watch. Everyone wants to get out of there. No one knows what to do with their body language and and what it's telling other people. And you put food on the table and it can be pizzas that have been delivered. You don't have to cook it. (laughs) Like it can be anything and everything changes. You know, people's body language changes. The whole feeling of a room changes when people are having a meal together. People start passing things to people and these things might seem really not important, but they really change the dynamic of, of the way we interact. And I think with that comes a lot of potential to really deal with some important things. Mm -hmm. And I feel that same thing about feed the resistance of like, after the election, I think there was so much, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And, and, you know, a lot of people burning out of like, okay, I have to put myself on the front lines, 
every day. And I think feed the resistance was such a reminder of like nourishment. Yeah. And it's a marathon, not a sprint. (laughs) Yeah. 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 We're still in it. Um, I guess I'm wondering what is your sense of, or do you have uh, ideas around queer sensibility in food? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really interesting question. And a lot of people have kind of asked me my thoughts about this. And I've been curious about others because I kind of am of the belief that queer food is just food made by queer people. Um, but within that, I think there is some interesting stuff. And in, in my mind, how I understand what different types of food are mostly come back to geography because mm-hmm. food tends to be, you know, a certain type of food, say, Thai food or um, food from northern China or food from Ethiopia or food from Mexico or whatever it is, regional food within a country, the differences between food in the American South versus the Pacific Northwest or something, all these things are defined by geography. So it's like what's growing there, what's available, and what have been the kind of customs of the people who live there. And when it comes to the question of queer food, you know, queer people are everywhere. (laughs) And there's different food everywhere. So there's queer Mexican food, there's queer Thai food, there's queer Vietnamese food. So it's, I think it's a, it's a hard question to answer, but to me, there is a certain sense of caretaking that is intrinsic to the queer community. And I think that comes through in not just the food we cook, but how we share it. And that to me is kind of what defines queer food is how, um, is how we share it. Because I think in my experience and, and from what I've observed, one thing that tends to kind of tie queer people together, the thing that we all have in common is this feeling of chosen family. And that comes to so many different people for so many different reasons. And I think within any family, you know, food is, is a big way that families are maintained, you know, the way relationships are, are grown and are sustained. So when we eat meals together, we are spending time with each other. Um, we're developing those kind of familial bonds. And we also, in times of need or desperation, food is this very, very tangible way we can take care of each other. So when someone is kicked out of the family they were born into, when someone has to leave that family for any reason, and they find their kind of chosen family, a big thing is is being fed. So I think that sense of just the kind of intrinsic hospitality that I think comes from the queer community is a big part of our food. And I see it happen in small, very intimate ways. You know, when my wife and I have another queer couple over and I make dinner, that is a very small example, but it's for us at least, and I can't speak for Grace, but for, I know for me, like when we have queer friends over just for a meal, I can make the same thing that I make for my straight parents or straight friends or whatever, but it feels different as a, a queer person in a queer couple to cook for another queer person or a queer couple. There, there There's a different feeling. So I know you know, it happens in those kind of small ways. And then I think there's like amazing, amazing examples. Like I look at God's Love We Deliver in New York City, which is like an incredible organization that makes like almost 2 million meals a year for people all over the city, like every single borough. Uh, And it started off as a group that was providing meals for people living with HIV and AIDS. And it was mostly queer people cooking for other queer people. And 
to me, the heart of that organization is like a queer heart, uh, which I think is really interesting. You know, and there's stories in in the history of the queer community too. And so many of the things that have defined the queer community have happened in places where food and drink are a big part of it. I just read this, I don't know if you read it, this article in Atlas Obscura the other day about like the history of lesbian potlucks. That was yeah, like, I'm going to talk to Raina this week. Yeah. I'm so excited. It was like, oh, I know this from like an intrinsic sense. Like yeah. I know that potlucks are deeply rooted in and come from my queer elders. Mm-hmm. But I just like didn't do the yeah. research and I was like, someone did it. Yeah, no, it was amazing. I like, I read it twice because I was like, let me just make sure I, I get this. And uh-huh. I felt the same as you. Like I kind of, I knew this, but I didn't really know this. And I was so, so glad to be able to read that. And I think one really interesting thing that came up in that piece was the class difference between men and women in the queer community. And, you know, so many gay men, I think, tend to label queer food in a way that I don't necessarily relate to. And it wasn't until I read that article that I really understood that that I think had to do more with class than anything else and having a certain amount of money to buy certain types of ingredients to prepare them in a certain way to present them in a certain way. That was a really interesting thing. Yeah, this idea that queer food is like glamorous and also that queerness is always glamorous yeah it's just something that I feel so disconnected from and that's a story but Mm -hmm. I feel like it it for a while when I was first reading articles about queer food it was the story Mm -hmm. and it it just wasn't landing yeah Yeah, and I think but what's so important about that I, I feel like both you and I had the same experience in reading that kind of thing and I think it just it reminds me just like any food any community like no one story defines the whole thing and mm-hmm. I, I mean I'm excited for what you're working on because I think that queer food doesn't have a, a single definition it has many definitions so I think it, it'll be interesting to hear what everyone's are you know no one person speaks for a whole community and I think the minute we label any community with one type of food, then it becomes a monolith and, you know, it's not representative. Have you watched the show Pose at all? No, but it just went on Netflix. So I have big plans. (laughs) Yeah, it's really, I don't, I don't know that it's like a perfect show, but I, I'm a big believer in it. I think it's pretty amazing. And there's a, there's a lot of food in that show. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of, um, I think in, in, in drag culture and the kind of whole, I, I mean, talk about sort of chosen family and using true family terms and having a mother and their children and all that. And one of the mothers on the show, she cooks for her kids and they have to cook in the house. And it's so much about how they build this house together and they build this home. And then there's a lot of scenes of after drag balls and stuff of people eating at like a, I think probably like a diner or something like that. And I don't know anyone like involved in making a show. Like, I don't know how much they talk about food or queer food or anything in that, but it was really interesting to me as like a quote unquote food person to be watching the show, to see how often it came up. And to me, there was a lot of messages coming through by, by choosing to use, you know, a restaurant as a location or the kitchen and the apartment as a location. And I think it really tells us a lot about the way food is used to really create family. Right. Yeah. I I love that. I Because I just am imagining you as a kid reading, writing a book report on like, this is what they ate. Yeah, so totally. just this lens of like to notice that. But I also think, right, it's like if you have a TV show and you don't have your characters eating, it's an unrealistic TV show mm-hmm. because that's just part of all of our lives. And so yeah. 
I don't know, it's, it's bringing me to, to this idea of like, when is something an invitation? Like, if you've never seen a drag ball and you stumble upon Pose and you watch the scene of something that is like maybe totally unfamiliar to then transition into a scene of people eating in a diner mm-hmm. is just a like, oh, right. Everybody mm-hmm. eats. <laughs> it's yeah. like a very humanizing moment. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that I love so much about food because, I mean, like we were talking about before, it is this thing that everyone across the world can relate to probably in many, many different ways and mm-hmm. some having, you know, relating to it and in harder ways than others. And, um, you know, food can be the source of a lot of trauma for a lot of people. And, uh, but it is, I mean, it it is one of the only things literally everyone in the world has in common. So there's a lot of power in that. And that's our show. I'm excited to say that since this conversation, I have been binge watching Pose. If you are extremely late to the party like me, I recommend you get on that train ASAP. Thanks to Julia for the tip. There are some incredibly important moments in this groundbreaking show that take place around meals. Links to Julia's work, including the Equity at the Table website, are in the show notes. Queer the Table will be back in two weeks. Uh, In the meantime, help other people find the show. Pass it along to your pals. Leave us a review on iTunes. Talk it up at your next dinner party, etc. Uh, You can also reach out to me at queerthetable at heritageradionetwork.org to let me know what you think and feel so far. Or if you have any queer moments around food or meals that you'd like to share, I would love to hear from you. Okay, credits. Queer the Table is produced by me, Nico Whistler. The logo was designed by Natalie Uduwella, and the theme song is by Denali Gillespie, who also inspired the name for the show. None of this would be possible without the support of the whole team at Heritage Radio Network. We are in the midst of our summer fun drive, and we need your support. You should become a member today. You can go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate right now. Lead me in the kitchen. What are we going to make? What do you crave? Hold our hearts, our history. Share it on a plate. What do you taste? Body, bring your love, bring the ones you're thinking of. Make space and Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.